I think it's a release. It's easier when you're able to go all in. If you have that second thing, that second chance, you have to constantly be deciding whether or not you're going to do it today, you're going to do it then. It's way easier to just be like, this is happening now. I'm going all in and I'm going to either die or crush it today. And that's to me, that's key for, for success in, in so many things. The things that I, I haven't done well in is when I wasn't able to go all in and I sort of second guessed what I was doing, how long I was going to be doing it, the, the long-term implications. It's all about being in it for, for the long haul and being all in. That's Greg Billington. And this is episode 94 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Happy New Year. I hope your 2020 is off to an excellent start. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Greg Billington. Greg made the 2016 U.S. Olympic team in triathlon and finished 37th at the Games in Rio. He retired a year later and took a full-time job working for Visa in San Francisco. While on a rotation in Dubai, he joined a local running club and ran the Pyramids Marathon in Egypt, winning it in 232. He then won last year's San Francisco Marathon in 225-24 and then ran 222 and change at New York last November and finished the year with an incredible 216-42 performance at CIM, finishing eighth overall and easily qualifying for this year's U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon. How good is this guy? In that race, CIM, he was in 52nd place at 30K and picked up 44 spots over the last eight miles. Just incredible. Greg and I had a great conversation that I'm excited to share with all of you. We talked running, triathlon, going all in on a pursuit, the physical and mental side of coming back from injury, what it means to go quote unquote full Billington, and a lot more. Let's get right into it. appreciate you taking a good chunk of your day to run with me this morning and then come up to my house and record this podcast. So I'd like to officially welcome you, Greg Billington, to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks a lot, Mario. Yeah, it was a bit of a rainy run, but it was great to come up here and thrilled to be on the podcast. Thanks. So you're living here in the Bay Area, which I didn't realize till mutual friend and former Morning Shakeout guest, Ken Rideout, connected us a few weeks back. What brought you to San Francisco and how long have you been here? Oh, yeah. I've been here for a couple of years now, but yeah, Ken. Ken's a fun guy. Glad I got to listen to his podcast a little while ago. Super exciting. But uh, I retired from professional triathlon a couple of years ago after competing in the Rio Olympics. Um, and I always knew I wanted to have some sort of job in tech, something like strategy. I'd had a fun internship at eBay. And Visa had a fantastic program, uh, Olympian Rotational Associate Program. Knew I wanted to join that. And it was in San Francisco. Knew I wanted to come out here. And that's how that's how I moved out to San Francisco. You first came on my radar, it was even before Ken introduced us, because you won the San Francisco Marathon earlier this year, and you beat a good friend of mine, Jorge Maravilla, who'd won the race the two years <laughs> prior. And I was like, who is this Greg Billington guy? And then I looked you up, I'm like, oh, he's a real deal. He was an Olympian in 2016 in triathlon, and he just cranked a 225 marathon. I had no idea that you were retired from triathlon at the time. I was like, oh, he's just, it's not an Olympic year quite yet. So maybe he's just, you know, playing around with some other stuff and he's going to get back to it. But 
how did you sort of lay out your plan for this year? Because you've run at least three marathons that I'm aware of, San Francisco, New York, and most recently CIM, which we'll talk about. And I know you're in the Pyramids Marathon. I don't know if that was before um, San Francisco or if it was even this year. But how, how are you thinking about 2019 from an athletic standpoint, given that your triathlon career was well over at that point? Uh, not not thinking about it, Mario. That's how, that's how I planned it, by having no plan. It's been a blast being retired from triathlon, and I can just kind of go out, run hard, smash myself, and not be concerned about whether or not I'm going to hit this next race perfectly. Uh, when I first started this year, the only reason I raced the Pyramids Marathon in February is I was living in Dubai at the time. I had a friend um, who was trying to race 12 marathons in 12 months to raise money for uh, charity, and then she was going to go race over in the Pyramids Marathon. I was invited to go over, race there with him, and I was like, sure. And then I thought more about it, and I was like, Pyramids Marathon? It's the first year it's happening. I'll bet it's not super competitive, so I'll bet if I train just a little bit, I could win the Pyramids Marathon. And so that that kind of got me into into training a little bit. And then I did win, won the Pyramids Marathon. So then I started getting hooked. Looked uh, After I finished that, took some time off and then was looking around. I knew I was moving back to San Francisco. And I was like, I wonder if there's any races in the U.S. that are kind of similar. They sound kind of impressive that maybe I could win if I just trained a little bit. I saw San Francisco had been running one in like a 227, 228 the past couple of years. And I was like, well, I ran a 232 and pyramids. It's in my wheelhouse. I just got to train a little bit. And then I was amped because, I mean, I love competing. I love racing. And I was thrilled to come back and just start just start throwing myself into the grindhouse. I'll have to see if I can find the finish line photo from San Francisco because you were amped. And then I just watched <laughs> last night your finish line video from CIM where you ran 216, 42 or 43. I can't remember exactly what it was. And you were also <laughs> amped. And it's great to see that on, on any athlete, but especially knowing that you've been at the pinnacle of not running, but sport and gone to the Olympics that you still get that excited by winning, you know, a midsize marathon and qualifying for Olympic trials marathon, which you just did. But let's go back to the end of your triathlon career. You were on the Olympic team 2016. Mm -hmm. Did you know you were going to retire from triathlon after that race or did you have some contemplative time afterward? I'd love to kind of get into your headspace during that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Touch on the first point. I love competing. I love racing and it's been awesome to be at back out there, no pressure, crushing some races. And it's just, it's just fun. Even when I finish eighth at CIM or 30th at New York or whatever, I'm just, I'm having a blast. And that's what I missed after, um, Rio and towards the end of my triathlon career. I didn't think I was going to retire after Rio. Um, when I, when I was going into it. Cause it, you were what? 27 at the time. Yeah. 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 20, 27. Yeah. 20, yeah. 27, just turned 27 in, uh, 2016. Um, and, you know, you keep on improving and into your 30s as a triathlete, especially. And no, it was just, I mean, that race was atrocious for me. I finished uh, 37th. Um, and as a U.S. triathlete, you don't, or as a U.S. athlete, you don't go into the Olympics going, you know what I want to do? I want to kind of finish in like the bottom half of the field and go back home and talk about that Olympic experience. Um, and then after that, I kind of kept on training and racing. I'd had tons of injuries throughout my career and it was continuing. Um, I was sort of limited to really doing a lot of my runs just as circles on a grass field or as hill reps, just so I wouldn't get injured. My racing 
I didn't think would lead me to be among the best in the world if I was kind of limited in my training like that. And I thought maybe as I kept competing after Rio, I'd start to redevelop the love for the sport that I'd always had. And it just, it didn't come back for, for, for months. I'd had some good races, but it still wasn't there. I wasn't driving the same sort of meaning out of triathlon. And then by early the next year, I was like, it's, I think I should move on. If I don't love this, if I don't have that fire, I'm not going to be as good as I need to be. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, it wouldn't have been a moment. It would have been a, a gradual thing. Actually, no, no, there's a pretty good moment. Um, so I raced, I raced the Abu Dhabi uh, WTS in beginning of 2017, um, and it it was a fantastic race. Uh, I finished seventh. It's one of the most competitive, best races I've had in my career. I crushed it. I got to go um, afterwards. They have. Uh, Abu Dhabi's fantastic. Dubai is fantastic. I'd lived there for six months. They have the biggest of everything, right? So they had the fastest roller coaster in the world. So I got to go race, got to go bike over immediately afterwards to the Ferrari Museum. And then the fastest roller coaster in the world, I got to go jump on that. And I'm slamming around that like 10 times in a row because it was awesome. And I was like, this is about as good as it gets. Uh, I had an awesome race. There's there's cool people I'm going to go hang out with later. I'm flying around on the world's fastest roller coaster, but it doesn't <laughs> quite have the meaning that I want it to. And it still is not here. Here. I mean, I'll give it a little bit longer, but, and I, and I kept on racing and had, had some, some okay results after that. But it was like, if this still isn't kind of getting me what I need to out of triathlon, there's, there's probably something I need to do, or maybe I need to look around for something. Um, and it was kind of, kind of around then that the consistent inability to derive meaning from my sport was sort of came to a head. Did you talk about the decision to retire from triathlon with family, friends, coaches, training partners, fellow competitors. I'd love to understand how you were going through that process as you realized, okay, the excitement's just not there anymore. I've, I've just, you know, competed at the highest level of the sport. I really can't see myself staying with it for that much longer. Was that all you or did you bounce that off of any people? It would have been with family. It would also have been with, uh, Joe Malloy, um, another guy who was on the Olympic team in 2016 with me, he'd retired a little bit before I had. Um, and so we were just both kind of going through the same sort of thing at the same time. And it was really helpful to have somebody there who was, who was kind of going through the same post-Olympic struggles, post-Olympic blues that people talk about and kind of be able to share share thoughts with, with him and then with my parents and some friends outside of the sport more so. A lot of folks in your position. I mean, they're squarely focused on trying to make the Olympic team and then compete well at the games for four years or longer. So as you just described, like you go through that and you didn't have a great race at the Olympics, but you have that post-Olympic blues that you had just mentioned. What I'd love to understand is, had you been thinking before that point about what life held for you after triathlon or were you so focused on the Olympics in 2016 and doing what you needed to do to make the team and compete well that like there was no plan B at that point? Yeah, it, it definitely varied over the course of my career, right? I, I built up 
I always knew I was going to have something to do after a triathlon. So when I went through school, when I went through college, I always had sort of a long-term career plan. I got, ended up with a degree in economics and exercise science. Um, I did a couple internships while I was living at the training center in Colorado Springs, a brief one with eBay, one with a senator um, out, Mark Udall, out in Colorado Springs. And those were cool. And I was sort of building up something that I could fall back on after I retired. But no, by the end, there was, for the last four years, last three years, when I joined the triathlon squad in 2014, through the Olympics, there there was no plan B. And, you know, to a certain extent, you always need to be prepared or have a plan B, but also you better be pretty single-minded if you want to do as well as you as you should and do as well as you could and really make an Olympic team. So no, for those last few years, there was no other focus. I did no other things. I was professional triathlete. That was it. I was sleeping by the end, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day in an altitude tent. And then I'd go out and I'd do my training. There was, there was no other life. There was nothing else. It was all triathlon. It was all triathlon. At what point did you start thinking seriously about what you would do after your competitive career was over? Um, I'd had a brief internship at eBay in 2013. Uh, that was really fun. It was cool. I was working in strategy with a bunch of really smart people down in San Jose. And after that, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to make my way back to San Francisco, San Jose, um, sort of tech area. And that was kind of, kind of my plan afterwards. I didn't know quite what form it would take or, or what it would look like, but that was the general concept that I had in my head. When your career was over and you were like, okay, I'm done with this. It's time to move on. What were those next steps like for you when you were figuring out where you were going to go post-triathlon? I got really lucky, really lucky. Um, I know Joe Malloy he went through the same thing, but he didn't have, he went through a bunch of different options before he found what he wanted to, or what he wanted to try out um, after, after triathlon. But for me, I got lucky that I found this Olympian rotational program at Visa because it was perfect. It was in San Francisco. It let me try out a few sort of different types of work because the rotational program goes through four different rotations at Visa, which can be super different because Visa is huge, right? It has 10, 15,000 employees. It has all the different teams that you could want, product development, strategy development, marketing, um, anything you could want to do. And so I was like, this is perfect. I don't really know what I want to do, but I know I want to be in San Francisco and I know I kind of want to work in tech and development and this is where I want to go. So it was, I got lucky that I was accepted into the program and, and thrilled that I got to come out here. And Visa as one of the Olympics major partners, was that your foot in the door was the fact that you were an Olympian and you had an opportunity to go in there and try this out? Yeah, um, the, the program was made specifically for Olympians and it was the first year that they were doing it when I was applying. Uh, okay. And it was, they let in a class of three that first year. They still are doing it. So every year, three more Olympians, they'll hire for this rotational program. And yeah, really becoming an Olympian was the first step to being able to apply for the program. And then you had to go through a classic interview. Can you answer this case study question? Are you appropriately articulate or can you talk to people? Do you have any sort of background that would let you be successful at Visa? Um, but they were you know, fantastic coming in because obviously I have very limited Excel, PowerPoint, 
skill sets and they they worked hard to make sure you develop the appropriate things to succeed. What's that transition been like for you? As you just described, you were all in on triathlon, you know, sleeping literally half the day, spending the rest of your day training, making sure you're eating well, you know, injury prevention, like all, I mean, just all triathlon all the time. And you're at training camp, you know, you're with your mates doing your thing to all of a sudden switch gears completely and be living in a city have a bit of a commute, work in an office environment, have set hours, not be out exercising all the time. I imagine not able to sleep 12 hours a night, not that you need to <laughs> anymore. I'd love to just understand a little bit more about what that transition was like. Yeah. Yeah. You were around, you went from being a triathlete exercising to being around people for a long time every day. It was like at least eight hours that you were just surrounded by people. I couldn't get away from my, from my two to 3 PM nap anymore. Mario it was, it was atrocious. <laughs> I need, I need that. I need that in the day, like the two to 3 PM, you wake up, you do the half of the day, then you go to sleep and then you wake back up and then you finish the day. That was tough. Um, but yeah, it was weird. Because with triathlon, as with any sport, you have this one driving, overarching goal. You're going to become an Olympian. You're going to smash yourself. You're going to sleep 12 hours in the tent. You're going to sacrifice this. You're going to do that. You're going to eat this. And you're going to do that. And you're a triathlete all day long. That's and your identity. That's your identity. That's who you are. And then you switch over to work and you can't really approach it that same way. You've got to break everything down and rebuild sort of your life with a bunch of different facets. You got to, you got to build out, um, sort of a social circle. You've got to build out how you want to approach your job and the goals that you have at your job. And there is not just going to be one goal. There's not just going to be make the Olympic team, be the best in the world. There's going to be, I'm going to launch this project, send out this newsletter, do this thing for this guy. Um, and it was weird trying to no longer have that one big thing but then have a bunch of little things and rebuilding all of those little things that I, I wanted to achieve to make my life whole. When you're a triathlete at the level that you're competing or any athlete at the level that you're competing, it's all you. And oftentimes when I talk to Ken about mm -hmm. this, he's not an Olympic level athlete, but he's like, this is the one thing in my life that I have full control over. Like I'm going to get out of it what I put into it. Same thing with triathlon and what you're doing. Now you're in an environment where you've got to work with other people. You're on a team. They're relying on you. You're relying on them. Was that a challenging transition or situation for you to be in? Yeah, absolutely. It's a whole, whole new skill set. Like I love in college, I never liked the the working with people or the group projects because I always found I'd be the guy who's doing all the work or I'd uh, just want to just do it all, just get it in, get it done and, and finish it up. But I love the group projects and working with people at Visa just because there's so many smart people that I get to work with, right? And so many smart people who can come together, solve a problem, figure it out, and you end up with this pretty incredible solution when it all works right. Obviously, there's there's downsides. Sometimes things move slow. Sometimes things don't move as fast as you'd like. Sometimes you come up with the solution and there's just a lot of buy-in that you need to get. And that's, that's a weird balance trying to move from that individual, I'm going to make this next thing move, next steps, next steps, next steps. I'm in charge of all of those. But there's also beautiful things that come out of it that you can build with other people that you just can't do when you're doing it by yourself. That's why I liked um, training with a group, training with the squad, is it's the same kind of thing. There's, It's not just the fact that when you go train with the triathlon squad, you're going to get pushed every day because that can be a bad thing, right? You don't want to get pushed on your easy day. You don't want to get pushed too hard on your hard day. But what you do want to get out of a training group is you want to learn from what other people and what have made them successful or what has more frequently made them fail. 
um, and, and being part of that group environment, both at Visa and in a sporting environment, uh, are extremely valuable, extremely valuable. I think it's amazing that you've been able to take advantage of this opportunity that Visa has for Olympic athletes. But as you mentioned, this is the first year that they did it. Um, mm-hmm. You're part of the initial class. But it's not the case for a lot of Olympic athletes, regardless of sport. They've dedicated their entire life and livelihood to this one pursuit. And then when it's over, for whatever reason, a lot of them don't have a place to go. We've read about these stories, you know, in major newspapers, on websites, magazines, et cetera. Do you think more needs to be done for Olympic athletes to support them when their careers are over? Yeah, I mean, there's it's 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 less like I, I always have a sort of an aversion to more needs to be done for these people, right? Um, or, or for this for this thing, right? They need help. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's more of a, they need to be enabled to, to know what they need to do to make those next steps, right? They, they don't need the support. They just need to know what they have to they do. They need resources. They need that resources and, and those understanding because, I mean, they're Olympians. They didn't become Olympians because they lacked the work ethic or they lacked the drive or they, they lacked that ability to go launch and do that next thing. But it's just they need to know those couple little things that they need to do to prepare themselves for this next step because once you give them those tools, they'll take it and they'll run with it. They don't need that support. They just need to know that this challenge will await them and then what they need to do to overcome and crush that challenge. I'd love to go back to the origins of your athletic career. What I do know about you is you started in triathlon at like age 10 Mm -hmm. or something like that. And you grew up in the UK. You are American. You were born here in the States, but your dad taught abroad, I believe. And you spent most of your childhood in the UK. How did you get into triathlon? What was your initial introduction to the sport or just sports in general? Mm -hmm. So I would have been pretty young when I first started sports. And, uh, I have an older brother, older brother, also very athletic, very athletically talented. Um, and we both did martial arts when we were kids, but then I would have been around eight when I got into swimming, he would have been around 12. We both started swimming at the same age. That age, I kind of didn't really like taking showers. I kind of just was like, "Ah, I don't like really taking showers. My older brother, he was getting a little overweight. He was getting a little pudgy. My parents had tried to solve that at first by being like, oh, Brian, all these, all these cashews, they're way too expensive. Maybe you should switch from the cashews to the lettuce. <laughs> and then that didn't seem to take. And they needed a way to really solve the non-showering and the weight gain at the same time. And I think swimming that is the perfect solution. swimming is the perfect solution. Bam, just like that. They'd solved it. Uh, that wasn't the real reason. I think they always just wanted us to start with some sort of sports. My brother and I were both homeschooled um, up until high school. And my parents always tried hard to make sure that we could, you know, actually have conversations with people and knew how to talk. So they'd get us involved in local organizations. And one of the best ways was through sports. So that's why we started swimming um, at eight. I loved it. Uh, I got pretty competitive pretty quickly, as is the case with most of the things I do in my life. Um, and then kept swimming, kept getting better, kept racing pretty well, but then got really burnt out. I've also tended to put a lot of pressure on myself. So when I hit maybe 12 or 13 and was going through some times where I was training hard but not getting better and I wasn't doing well enough, um, my older brother had been a cross-country runner in high school. My parents were like, oh, when you go start high school with all the regular kids, you should probably 
go join the cross country team to meet some people. And so I started running cross country then, and then it was a natural progression into triathlon. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, same place my dad taught. So my dad taught science on RAF Lake and Heath over in England. So I went and I went to high school at RAF Lake and Heath, Lake and Heath Lancers. What was the first sport that you showed some athletic promise in? I, I did well at swimming. So I was a, I remember when I was eight, eight or nine, I think my second year swimming, this is when I knew I was going to become an Olympian. We had the Suffolk County Swimming Championships and we had the 50 fly. Fly was my specialty back then. And there was the reigning champion, Stuart King, who could smash all the events. Stuart King was my idol, but also not really my fiercest competition because I, I wasn't on his radar, but I managed to make it to the under nine 50 meter butterfly championship final for the Suffolk County. And I get the start, I think I was the fastest seed or the second fastest seed. And I dive in and I'm racing, I'm racing Stuart King and he's in lane four and I'm in lane five or I'm in lane four and he's in lane five and we go through halfway. We're together, we push off, we go through and then he starts catching me and he passes me and I'm like, ah, this is fine, you know, he's the best. He's the guy, he can win. And I was like, no, I'm gonna win, this is my time. And then I took it over, came in, won the 50 meter butterfly and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be an Olympian. Because <laughs> so you took out next Stuart step, King. Next, took out Stuart King. Next step is uh, Lenny Kraselberg. Lenny <laughs> Kraselberg would be the next step for me. Um, I think that's the case for all swimmers, though. Like swimmers, it's uh, you you do well, and, and the path is if you're a good swimmer, you're going to go to the Olympics. And I don't know how many other sports are really quite that Olympic-level driven from such a young age, but swimming definitely fixated that. Were you thinking about... And this is a serious question. Were you thinking about swimming at the Olympics at that time? Or was it, I'm just going to make the Olympics in something because I just showed that I'm tough and I can rally and I can beat the best and I'm going to apply that to whatever I get into? Oh, swimming. No, it was, it was going to be swimming. It was definitely going to be swimming. Um, I was also probably like four foot eight at the time or, or even shorter if I would have been nine, but I was still like under five foot and pretty close to that when I started high school. And by that age, I was like, oh man, these swimmers are pretty tall. I, uh, I should probably find another sport if I really want to be competitive and the best in the world. Um, and then when I started running, I did, I did pretty well at running too. And I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll switch over. Maybe I'll be a runner. Did you enjoy running when you first got into it? Yeah, it was fun. Um, it was fun. It was also pretty lucky to start running with, um, you run with the, the, the Dodds Europe. So that's the Dodds is for all the military schools. It's okay. the Dodds Europe sort of circuit, but it's a lot less competitive than the, the other circuits. So you race on that and I could find success pretty quickly there just because you run like a 16 minute 5k, you're going to, you're going to do well. And that's kind of the level that I, I started in at. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm pretty good at this. And I like winning. So I just kept on going with the running. <laughs> Hey, we're taking a quick break because this episode is brought to you by Exoskin. Exoskin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand in the United States and solves the problems most endurance athletes deal with like chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. Every Exoskin product uses their patented fibers, that's PTFE and copper, along with three-dimensional seamless knitting to create the most comfortable apparel on the market. Best of all, there's no friction. The stuff is super durable and it doesn't smell after I've run in it. I've run in both their compression shorts and their socks and have been super impressed with how they fit, feel, and perform on the run. The shorts are great on their own or they make an awesome base layer to keep you warm and the socks are lightweight, snug fitting, and moisture wicking. 
Exoskin lets me move freely and comfortably, and it helps keep my body temperature under control. Exoskin Apparel has been independently tested against all the big brands and has outperformed all of them when it comes to wicking and dry rate testing. You can check out the results of those tests on their website, exoskin.us. That's exoskin.us. Exoskin stands behind every product they make with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check them out today at exoskin.us. That's exoskin.us. And use the code Mario. That's my name. When you check out and you'll save 20% on any order. My thanks to Exoskin for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. How are you thinking about your future in athletics by the end of high school? Because you're an American living in the UK, probably, I mean, I don't know exactly how good you are, but I'm imagining not getting much attention from American colleges in terms of like, hey, we want you to come swim for our school or we want you to come run for our school. Were you thinking Mm -hmm. about going to college so that you could compete on either a swimming or cross country team at that point? Or were you thinking more of like, okay, I'm going to go somewhere and focus on my academics and maybe this, I don't know, maybe this Olympic thing will go on the back burner for a little bit. I'd love to just kind of get into your headspace during that time and understand how you were thinking about your next steps after high school. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I was going to be a 16 time NCAA champion and graduate at the top of my class at Stanford. That was the, uh, that was the, that was the path for me. No, I was always thinking about racing, competing in the U S I think the only way I got sort of onto people's radar a little bit was, I raced footlocker, I raced junior Olympics. Um, and so I'd fly over from the UK and I raced footlocker a couple of years, junior year, senior year. Of course, nobody had heard of me. Regionals or nationals? Regionals. I never okay. made nationals. I was 16th junior year, had a pretty good race. And then 11th senior year and was pretty, pretty upset that I didn't make it out of the West region to go, uh, compete at nationals. Um, but then one junior Olympics the next weekend senior year. So that was that was a pretty cool highlight for me that year. Were you recruited to run at Wake Forest or did you walk onto the team? Recruited a little bit. I knew by that point in time, though, I'd already raced a couple triathlons. I'd made the junior elite national team, which meant I got funded to go race in Lausanne, Switzerland as part of the U.S. junior men's elite team. And that was awesome. I was like, oh, they, they, they pay my way to go to Switzerland. This is this is the jam I want to do. I'm going to be going there. So I knew I wanted to go to a college that would also let me do triathlons on the side. So I found Wake Forest because they had a really good academic program, a Carswell Grant Scholarship, which was super cool. Always grateful to Wake Forest for this because it let me do research in the summer um, that they'd pay for. They'd give you like a summer grant to go do research on stuff. So I did research in the summers, the Olympic Training Center on some nutrition bars or stuff like that. That was really fun. But yeah, the reason I picked Wake Forest was because I liked the coach. He was coach Matt Kerr who went to Boston College, College, midway through my freshman year, um, and the academics there were were fantastic. Let's rewind a little bit. When did biking come into the equation? You've established yourself as a swimmer early on, showed some quick promise in running, already went into college with some triathlon experience under your belt. When did that part of it come into the picture? (sighs) If you talk to some people, I don't know if it ever came into the picture. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not your strongest leg. <laughs> not my strong. By the by, the end I was got pretty strong. But yeah, at the beginning it just came in as part of as part of triathlon. So I started swimming, biking, and at the junior level you can kind of get away with not being a, a super strong cyclist, at least in the in the U.S. at that time. Um, 
so it jumped in when I started racing some some triathlons, and I realized I needed to bike a little bit more. But really, to be honest, it came in when I was very young. My parents are super athletic. They love um, just hiking everywhere. So when I moved to England when I was three, like the first thing we did when we moved to England was my parents were like, we need to see the countryside of England. So we got this three-year-old and this seven-year-old. The best thing for us to do is this 100, 150-mile hike across England. So they take me and I'm three and my brother's seven. We're hiking like eight to 10 miles every day for, for a couple weeks. And they would just do a little stop and rest breaks and we made it across. So that was when I was three. When I was 11, we did a crazy summer biking like a a thousand miles north of the Arctic Circle. So we had tandems. My mom would ride on the front of one tandem with me. My dad would ride in front of the other tandem with my brother. And we'd just do these crazy long bike trips. And I remember biking at like 10 or 11 at night up in Scandinavia and it was still bright out. But those would have been like my first cycling memories and those were pretty cool. So this is all you knew from the time that you were a young kid because it's how you were brought up. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Sports and athletics is how you see the world, is how you experience stuff. But yeah. also at those ages, that's pushing yourself. I mean you're three years old hiking <laughs> around England yeah. and you know, even at eleven years old, like biking around Scandinavia or whatever it is. I mean most kids that age aren't doing that sort of thing and it doesn't come very naturally to them because they haven't built up the endurance (laughs) base to do it. So like you're pushing yourself pretty hard from a young age and not getting any sympathy from your parents because they're like, no, we're going to do this thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It wasn't so much as no sympathy. It's just like, this is just a regular thing. Why would we have sympathy for you right now? Just just roll with it, Greg. Well, I think when that's your (laughs) normal too, as you proceed through life, the way that you look at different obstacles and challenges that get thrown in your way is a lot, it looks a lot different than someone who hasn't grown up quite that way. Oh, I got super lucky with how I was brought up. Um, it was awesome growing up over in the UK. Just my parents moved there so we could travel, right? So we got to travel everywhere. I got to travel all around the world and all those different places. They'd find some way to fit in some sort of athletic activity. So I know when we went to China, when I was like 10, the, the key part of that trip was we spent 10 days out hiking these remote sections of the Great Wall, where the Great Wall is not even like stone anymore. It's just this pile of sand because all the stone has been taken out to build the the local villages right next to the fallen down Great Wall. So we'd be out there 100, 110 degrees out. We're hiking a bunch of miles and we have a guide and we're eating anchovies and some bread for food. It was fantastic. I mean, just the coolest way to grow up ever. So back to Wake Forest. Yeah. Is the Olympic dream still very much alive when you're matriculating there as a freshman because you had shown some really good potential in triathlon? Oh yeah. The Olympic dream for me really had been a burning passion since I was like nine. I mean, that, that, that wasn't a joke. I started thinking about it then and it was still very strong then. I knew I wanted to be an Olympian in triathlon throughout that time. I was working with a coach, Justin Trelay, who was based out in Colorado Springs. So over the summer, I would go out to Colorado Springs, train at the Olympic Training Center out there with him, and then I'd go back to Wake Forest in the fall to resume training with the cross-country and track team, which, of course, is super dumb. I mean, you can't race four seasons out of every year and expect to stay healthy, so I just got injured a lot because I was an idiot. So 
I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. How did you, it doesn't sound like you balanced the two very well <laughs> at the time, not. but how <laughs> did you balance being part of a division one cross country team yeah. and track as well? I know you ended up running track throughout your collegiate career and also competing at a very high level of triathlon where you have a whole nother coach and program. Like, was there communication between you and the different coaches? Did you sort of shut yourself off from one while you were fully immersed in the other? I'd love to just mm -hmm. get into that a little bit and understand how you made it all work or tried I to make know. it all work. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, I didn't do a very good job with it. I did a pretty good job with freshman year. Um, I sort of had good communication. I raced pretty well freshman year. Um, Cross country track. I ran a fourteen twenty eight five k, so I was pretty amped with that. As a freshman, yeah, yeah, damn, dude. Because I was going, I, I was stoked with that because it was like sort of as I was coming into triathlon season, and I was getting ready for World Juniors that year. That's my fi final year World Juniors, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm a pretty good swimmer, I'm a pretty good runner. Fourteen twenty eight is pretty fast. I could probably win some World Junior Championships here." Right. And then went into that race. It was in Vancouver. And I remember it was just freezing cold and I didn't do a good job managing the cold and just, just completely blew that race. But uh, then going through the rest of my career, it was like I'd run cross country, run pretty okay in cross country, and then break down some period of time in indoor, outdoor track, and then get healthy again in time for triathlon season, race well enough and frequently enough to requalify for like the world, I mean, like the national team for under 23s or for juniors, come back, race pretty well cross country, and then break myself again for track. Do you think it was overtraining that got the better of you or was it under recovery or a little bit of both of those things? Yeah, yeah. For me, overtraining really is under recovery. I think you can train pretty much as, as much as you want as long as you're getting in the right recovery to fit in that training. And I just wasn't because I, I had oh, to you're make, balancing an academic load at the time. Yeah. Maybe a social life, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, not, not really. No. Why, why, why have a social life when you can go race around and, and get good grades? Yeah. There was a minimum GPA I had to keep up for my scholarship. So I knew I had to, had to keep that up. And I mean, regardless of that, I, I like having a high GPA. So that was, it just took up a lot of time and yeah, just, just ended up always with some sort of stress fracture. I had really bad plantar fasciitis sophomore year, and that took out like a lot of the year until I, I ruptured those guys. I ended up getting surgery on one, got plantar fasciitis in the other foot senior year, and then just ran a stupid hard track workout with 200s and then ruptured the plantar fascia that year. Um, there, was, there was no balance. Uh, I, I think as I've, I'd like to go all in. That's, that's what I like to do. And if I'm not going all in, then I, I never feel quite comfortable. And then for me at, at that age, I wasn't able to figure out what level of all in was, was appropriate. So I just go all in until I'd explode. Did you ever get to a point in college or maybe it was beyond college? I mean, you had to eventually where you're like, all right, I'm going all in on triathlon and I'm going to run, but it's only part of my training as a triathlete. I'm not going to be as dedicated to the cross country and track teams, you know, as I have been the last few years. Did you ever hit that point in college or was it not till afterward that you decided to start pushing everything toward triathlon again? It was track, um, senior year. I, I, 
was doing pretty okay, but I graduated in 2011. So I was thinking about qualifying for the Olympics in 2012. And I just started working with Paolo Sousa, who leads the triathlon squad. I'd go back to train with him full-time in 2014. But I knew that if I wanted to uh, qualify for the Olympics in 2012, I'd have to start racing in 2011 in order to get the points to qualify for the qualifying races because triathlon Olympic qualification is quite convoluted and you need to have a high world ranking to even even qualify. Um, hey, so running almost year. got there in the past year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It did. It did. It was lucky that they dropped back that back. It's uh, cool to have just a race where you can get top three and go. Yeah. Was there ever any point where one of your coaches, whether it was from triathlon or track and cross country, Matt Kerr at Wake Forest said, hey, dude, you've got to make, make a decision because this clearly – is not working for you right now because you're hurt every mm-hmm. other month or something like that. Yeah. No, um, a, a little bit. So we had Matt Kerr freshman year. We had a different coach sophomore, junior okay. year, different coach senior year. Um, Brad Hunt. I really liked working with Brad Hunt. He was cool. And senior year cross country, I knew I really wanted to go all in. So I cut back a lot of the triathlon training to go all in on the on the running training okay. and then after that had a conversation with with Paolo knew kind of what my goals were and what I'd need to do to qualify for the Olympics in 2012 so then I did just quit the track team to go all in on triathlon just because by then we knew knew it wasn't working what was that year-long period or maybe it wasn't even a year-long period from 2011 when you finished up school trying to get ready to qualify for the London Games making the decision to work with Paolo and mm-hmm. his squad was that pretty fast process for you I'd love to get into how that came to be yeah so graduating senior year I'm full in on triathlon training. Um, it's going well, biking a lot. And then out on one bike ride, it's raining. Things are going pretty okay. I'm getting pretty fit, getting ready for, I think there was some World Cup that I wanted to compete in. And then I'm biking back and all of a sudden this car turns left in the rain in front of me. It's pouring down rain. The car can't stop. I can't put on my brakes. I go flying. Car and, car and I collide. I go flying. I break both my arms. And I'm graduating, obviously, with two casts. So I spend the next, that whole summer, I can't race. I've got two casts on my arms and I'm doing all my swimming with those huge rubber latex arm bags that you can kind of put on. And I'm trying to swim with the triathlon squad with those on, trying to run. I was living out at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center going for all my runs with with a couple different casts on. It was uh, It was a heck of a heck of a few months while I was trying to get back into race. But then at the end of that year, um, things had gone well. So I raced World U23 championships and I got fourth. So I was like, oh buddy, I'm running pretty fast. I'm doing pretty well. I could probably, probably get back in. And it was, yeah, that year was, was fantastic because I was able to finally push through all that end. And then after getting fourth, you know, for triathlon to qualify for the Olympic trials, you need to have really high world ranking. So all of a sudden I just kind of had to empty my bank account to do races in Australia, Brazil, just get the points you all needed. over the world to get the points I needed to qualify for Olympic trials. And they had the trials in San Diego that year, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. How'd that go for you? It went both extremely well and very disappointingly, right? Because I obviously didn't make the 2012 Olympic team, but I did have kind of a breakout race there. It was a WTS triathlon race, which is most competitive race in, in the 
into the triathlon circuit, has all the top guys. And I got 15th. It was my first WTS race. That's like, I was 15th in the world. I was the third U.S. guy. Um, but again, that year, because, you know, we hadn't had a bunch of guys racing for the U.S. super well, we'd only qualified two spots for the country. So two guys got to go. Um, and the then first man out. First man out, first man out. There was some, yeah, for, yeah, yeah, at that race, kind of first man out. There were some other qualification procedures that could have maybe got somebody else in. But yeah, first got to miss out there. But I was stoked because I was like, if I can race this well off of this many injuries, this could be a good career. I should be fine. I should be able to have a good good next few years. So it was validating for you. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. That was, yeah, yeah. Early on in my career, that was one of those races where I was like, yeah, I got this. I could be... I could be a pro. I could be one of the top guys in the world. Let's hit pause right there so I can go back to Wake Forest for one last question. You majored <laughs> in economics and exercise science. Yeah. That is an interesting combination <laughs> that from the outside looking in don't seem to go together. How did you land there? Yeah, I landed there because I like exercise and science and I started out with that, but then realized midway through that I didn't really want to be a doctor. Um, or be a physical therapist, but that I still really liked exercise science for my professional triathlon career. It was valuable to know about nutrition and um, physiology, human anatomy, and that was going to be really valuable for me as a professional triathlete. However, I did know again, and I was consistently planning for that career after triathlon. I'd taken one economics class, loved it. It clicked. I loved that it gave me sort of a, an kind of an understanding into how things functioned. And I got obsessed with making that in another major. That's super interesting. So you got the exercise science route and you're like, all right, I'm going to use this over the next few years when I'm dedicating myself wholly to triathlon so I can understand, I mean, even though you're going to have coaches, how the body works, how it responds to stress, how what I need to do to get to the level I want to get to. But then I've got this other thing, which I'm just going to kind of put in the closet for a little while or on the back burner and I'll go back to it whenever that part of my career is over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's some pretty incredible foresight at what, like 21 <laughs> years old? I don't know about that, but yeah. I think so. Yeah, I was thinking about the kind of next step, two or three steps down the road, what I was going to do. So here we are, 2012. You just missed making the Olympic team, but you had a great race and you're like, all right, I think with a little bit more time, I can really make an impact in triathlon and I have reason to believe that this Olympic dream is still alive for me, but you're racing Olympic distance triathlon, which is, I mean, triathlon is not really mainstream, but in terms of like what is mainstream in triathlon, it's half Ironman, Ironman. That's where people are making the money. It's no different than running. Really. A lot of people go to marathons and racing on the roads because that's where the money is. It's not on the track, which is the Olympic sport that everyone likes to pay attention to every four years. How were you making a living during that time, right out of school, trying to make it as an Olympic distance triathlete yeah. when that's a really, really hard thing to do, especially when you're just getting into it at that level after college? I got, I got really lucky that USA Triathlon let me go live at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. I'd been qualifying and making sort of junior elite under 23 national teams for the past four years. They kind of thought that I had some potentials. So they were willing to give me bed space to go live at the Olympic Training Center, which meant that I essentially had room and board for free. And then if I raced well enough at races, I'd be able to get money to go to those races. So basically it was kind of like I was living for free. I had no money to spend on anything, but 
I could live and, and do my dream. So that's how I supported myself that first year out. Was there a timeline on that where they said, we'll let you do this for a year or two years? I'd love to understand how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So before I'd been there, <laughs> there were guys who'd been living at the Olympic Training Center for like a good 10 or 15 years. They had the same bed space for, <laughs> for maybe a decade, kind of had flower pots growing outside of their room. So it was a place where if you were competing well, you could stay there. But the idea is, especially with triathlon, um, it's, it's lucky because it's one of those sports where it has enough age group following that there's a lot of sponsorships in the sport. If you're doing well, you can get a good bike sponsor, a good shoe sponsor, a good swim sponsor, a good maybe headphone company can sponsor you. There's there's so many different ways and so many different means for people and sponsors to monetize your presence that you should be able to, after a little while, if you're racing appropriately, make enough money to kind of move out on your own. When did you transition out of the Olympic Training Center? At the end of the at the end of 2013. Um, so I'd had a couple pretty good, pretty pretty. 2012 ended up being pretty rough after that 15th place. Um, I ended up getting injured. I'd had a long year of trying to kind of get back into things. I finished eighth that year at the under 23 world champs, which was like my key race. And I was super disappointed by that. And then in 2013, I started racing a bit better. Um, but at the end, a lot of those kind of pros who'd been in the triathlon circuit for a long time and had been living at the Olympic Training Center, either retired or moved away and it lost that kind of group training atmosphere, which I really benefited from. And Paulo Sousa, again, I wanted to start working with him again. He was based in San Diego, so I moved out there at the end of uh, 2013, beginning of 2014. Was there any point during that period where you second-guessed your decision to stay with triathlon or maybe thought, twice about it where you're like, you know what, I should just go get a job and like leave this behind and have a little bit more security in my life. Or were you going to see it through all the way to the Olympics in 2016, no matter what? There was no second guessing. There were days that were miserable. <laughs> there were days that were pretty awful and days that maybe, no, no, I, I'd always known that I had this internal drive and I really needed to make Rio. Like it was just this core fundamental driving belief that even if things were going terribly, I believed 100% that I should make it, I was going to make it, I was talented enough to make it. It's, it's weird being a pro because you have to be both extremely honest with yourself and also very delusional. And trying to maintain those two very separate doublethink-esque mindsets at the same time is, is, a, is a challenge. How important is it to have that mindset as an athlete where you don't give yourself a plan B or you don't give yourself a backup plan? You say, I'm going to go all in on this because I see it with some age group athletes that mm -hmm. I work with and not that they can go all in it, all in on it from the standpoint of this is how I'm going to make my living and feed my family. But they say, I'm going to go for a BQ at this particular race. But <laughs> if it doesn't work out, then I'm going to go to this one like, you know, three months later. So they're already kind of like giving themselves an out or like a little bit of an excuse. Like if this doesn't go well, like yeah. I've got that. Where I've seen like the ones who are like, you know what, this is where I'm going to shoot my shot. Yeah. And hopefully I get it. I'm going to do everything that I can to give myself the best chance of success. But if I don't, I can live with that too. It's, I think it's, it's, it's a release. It's easier when you're able to go all in. 
if you have that second thing, that second chance, you have to constantly be deciding whether or not you're going to do it today, you're going to do it then. It's way easier to just be like, this is happening now. I'm going all in and I'm going to either die or crush it today. And that's to me, that's key for, for success in, in so many things. The things that I, I haven't done well in is when I wasn't able to go all in and I sort of second guessed what I was doing, how long I was going to be doing it, the the long-term implications. It's all about being in it for, for the long haul and being in all in. During this period of 2012 to 2016, between Olympic years, you're all in on triathlon, but you were doing some other stuff to sort of set yourself up for life post-triathlon. You worked the internship at eBay, I think 2013, so I was right mm-hmm. during that period. Were you working for the senator in Colorado during that time as well? Yeah, so I would have these internships during the off-season. Okay. You're training a little bit less, you're not traveling for races, you have some time off, and you have a little bit more flexibility in your schedule. So it'd be like during the kind of November through January, February off-season, I'd be able to fit in something else that kind of added to my life and, and enabled me to have sort of an outlet outside of triathlon. And how, that was when I was doing it. How important was it for you to have that outlet? Because a lot of athletes don't give themselves mm-hmm. that outlet. It, it was, yeah. I always felt like I succeeded and felt happier when I had those other things that I was doing on top of triathlon. It, it made me feel more like a rounded person. There were other things I was able to develop, different parts of my mind that I was able to work and it was key for me to feel like I was doing those things, um, but then be able to shut those down when I really needed to focus on triathlon. Um, I liked that I was able to take that off season to go work at eBay. I met some fantastic people there who still live in San Francisco. And working there, feeding off the energy of those different people, understanding the different lifestyle, the people who were working that full-time job, you could take that and you could figure out what made them successful there and then bring that into triathlon or at least think how it contrasted with triathlon. Let's fast forward to like, say, 2014, 15, 16, leading up to the Olympic year in Rio. How are things going for you within, say, two years of the games? And what, let's just start there. What? How are things yeah. going for you within the two years <laughs> uh, leading up to the games? Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, I don't think I even towards the end was great at balancing the all in. 2014, I had a great off season. I was crushing it. I had some great runs. And then a couple weeks before first race of the season, I'm running, I'm smashing some some tempos. I'm doing a, an easy run with uh, the other guys on the squad, Jason Peterson and Eric Lagerstrom on the beach out in San Diego. It's beautiful. I'm feeling good. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I think I need to slow down a little bit, guys. You can go ahead. And... Then all of a sudden I'm walking and I like can't run, can't walk. And I had a stress fracture in the neck of my femur. Um, so that was beginning of 2014 for me. And that took me out for quite a few months. Femoral stress fracture in the neck of your femur is not a great one to get. And it took you out for a long time. So I got back towards the end of that season, got in some training, won some random Continental Cup, did pretty well at a couple other kind of World Cups at the end, but nothing spectacular. Maybe I got top 10, something like that, and got my world ranking back high enough to be able to get back into some top races starting out 2015. What did that particular injury do for your psyche at the time? It, it's Every injury gets harder 
because you start to have less faith in your body and it's it's the different sort of mindsets you have to have to be like, no, this is fine, I can push myself or no, what do I need to do to stop? And it, yeah, every time you get injured, just just that coming back process is is slightly more challenging. So it's like so many hours in the pool I'd have to do. So what I'd do is I'd just, instead of swimming 5K, maybe I'd swim 10K that day and then I'd spend a couple hours sitting in there aqua jogging. And then as soon as I could get back on the alter G, alter Gs were key for my recovery. So I'd spend hours running on the alter G like every week, every day. I'd be on the alter G running by the end, probably just like an hour at 12 miles an hour at 85% body weight because I could handle that. And then I'd come back and I'd be pretty fit, but it was, that one wasn't particularly rough. It was like one of my second, maybe serious injuries. But then um, I, I had, like three or four, no, three femoral stress fractures or no, four femoral stress fractures or reactions throughout my career. And by the fourth one, it just got too much because the fourth one was before Rio. So 2015, I had a great year. I um, did well, basically solidified my qualifying spot for the 2016 games. But then that final qualification race for the Olympics for me was in Yokohama, Japan at the beginning of 2016. It's kind of the end of the qualification period. So we all started that race. I had a bunch of points, but I came into it with an injury. Um, again, it was a femoral stress fracture that I didn't realize was a stress fracture at the time. So I'm running. I can't even finish that last race. So when I qualified for the Olympics, I qualified for the Olympics with a DNF at a race. And it was a pretty, pretty weird psyche experience. Kind of anticlimactic. Oh yeah. Super anticlimactic. <laughs> when you're injured, would you ever allow yourself to feel sorry for yourself? I, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not so much you allow it. It just happens and you're like, Whoa, yeah, I don't feel great now. The yeah. Reason, Cause the reason I asked that listening to you just describe what you would do when you couldn't run, you'd double your swimming volume. You'd, I mean, you would focus on the things that you could do, not mm -hmm. the things that you couldn't do. And that's something that I preach with all of my athletes, because I do think we all have a natural tendency to start feeling sorry for ourselves when we can't run. Like we can't yeah. do the thing that we want to do. And I mean, you're a triathlete, so you got other things you can do anyway and skills that are in your best interest to refine a little bit. But as runners, I mean, runners hate to get the pool. They hate yeah. to like get on a bike. They just want to run. But I tell them, if you focus on what you can do and what you rather than what you can't, one, you're not going to feel sorry for yourself. And two, you're actually going to be able to maintain some level of fitness or redevelop or develop some skills that you just can't, you know, as a runner. And I'm, I'm interested in that because it seems like, okay, well, yeah, you've got these other things you need to do anyway, because you need to still be able to swim very well. You still need to be able to bike well. Um, but it didn't seem like you would ever really let yourself feel too bad or feel sorry for yourself when you had this, I mean, femoral stress, femoral stress fracture is a pretty catastrophic injury. <laughs> they're not great. They're, no. they're not ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously you get sad and you'd get pissed off. Um, I think after my third stress fracture in my femur, I just sort of like didn't leave my room for a few days. But then after those few days, you kind of figure out a plan for what you for what you need to do. Uh, so for me, it was both doing all those cross-training things and then I um, just got out a GMAT prep book and I started taking, uh, studying and took the, took studying for that, you know, kind of few months period that I was injured for the GMAT. So if I wasn't, I just didn't want to think about not being able to run or not being able to compete with guys. So I always had to have something that was occupying my mind. <laughs> 
Let's go back to qualifying for the Olympics in yeah. 2016. You just mentioned how it was a little anticlimactic because yeah. you qualified with a DNF, but you still qualified. You've realized this dream now that you've had since you were a little boy. Yeah. Was there moment of celebration, excitement? I, I'd love to just like get into your headspace during that time, given that you just DNF this race and yeah. it's like, congratulations, you're on the Olympic team. <laughs> no, it was awful. The whole experience was awful because I'm injured, right? I'm injured. I find out after the race, I go back. Like I've been seeing doctors this whole time and I was like, something's going on with my hip. I like it hurts when I run. I don't know what's going on. And then it was kind of thought it was some sort of strain, some sort of something else. Um, so I was always just like a little bit running, a little bit not running and never really letting get better. So I come back, finally get um, some more diagnostic work done and it's a, it's a stress fracture again. And it was devastating because you get the stress fracture, you've qualified for the Olympics in May, you know, the Olympics are in August. So what are you going to do to actually get ready to compete? And are you going to be ready or should you just pull yourself off the team? Because if you can't be ready to race at the Olympics to your best, why are you going to, why are you going there? Why are you taking a spot from somebody who could, who could potentially do better than you? So the whole time it was just a race against the clock to see if I could get back, if I could get fit and feel like I'm ready to race and represent the U.S. like I've wanted to since I was nine years old. So the whole time it wasn't like I was celebrating because I knew if I had and I approached the race and did terribly, it was going to be devastating. Did that in itself light a fire under your ass? Doesn't sound like your type of person who really needs many fires <laughs> lit under your ass, but you were on this like really tight timeline to get yourself ready for the Olympics in August, and you've got a cracked femur, which doesn't heal very quickly. For those of you out there in podcast land <laughs> who have no experience with a femoral stress fracture, uh, does not take like four to six weeks to come back from that. No, it take, takes quite a while. Time. So I'd love to like go to that period between yeah. qualifying in the Olympic Games and what you were doing to get uh -huh. yourself ready to compete in Rio. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd had a fire lit under my ass since I was nine years old. So it just it just kept burning there. Um, I, was, I, I had some excitement, but I also fortunately, you know, if I've had a stress fracture before, then I know what I need to do to come back. And it was a lot of recreating that, but also trying to get on the right timeline and do everything that I needed to do to get back as quickly as I could. So part of that was, I mean, I worked with the nutritionist a few times throughout my career, but then it was recycling with that nutritionist to understand what I needed to do to eat the right things, to heal myself as quickly as possible. I was working with the sports psych to make sure that I didn't, you know, go up and down too much and just kind of stayed with the appropriate mindset to come back quickly, to train quickly. And then it was about living at the kind of Olympic training center again, both in Chula Vista and Colorado Springs to make sure that every day I was doing, you know, any type of rehab that I could do to actually come back strong. You know, when you have one of those stress fractures and you can't really walk, you're sort of limited and you come back and you can have a bunch of muscle imbalances. So it was about making sure that I did all the appropriate strength training to make sure that when I came back, everything was still firing and appropriately right without negatively implement, uh, impacting my recovery. So that was another thing I had to take advantage of. And then I also knew I needed to fit in an altitude block, but at the same time, altitude can negatively impact how quickly you recover from something, right? right? Because it's another stress on your body. So I had to figure out how to time the altitude block with the Olympics, with recovery and figuring out all those things was, you know, you come up with a plan and you go, this is the plan. And then you commit to it. You kind of don't go back. You go all in on the plan unless, unless something gets screwed up. 
by the time you got to the Olympics, did you feel like you were ready to compete? I'd put in some good work and I felt really good. What felt weird was I felt like I missed like my taper going in, which, which was a weird, weird experience. Cause usually I could, I could kind of taper and, and kick off pretty well. But I think, um, yeah, the only thing that felt funky was just like weeks before, usually what's happening is I feel like garbage and then kind of taper, you come back out and you're smashing it. And then that race, all of a sudden I was like crushing workouts the whole time, feeling awesome. And I never really wanted to think about it too much, but I was like, this is an unusual build to still feel awesome at this point in you time. Didn't, you didn't get your garbage period before the race. I didn't get race. my garbage period before the race and that was concerning. But no, I'd, I'd put in a bunch of good training. I'd done the right stuff and... My swimming had been going great, and my biking had been going really well. I set a set a Strava KOM up Snow Bowl in a Flagstaff, and that was uh, was a big deal for me at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I knew I was ready because there were some pretty tough climbs in in Rio. So everything physically was was like I'm I'm ready. I should be able to smash this. I'd love to talk about your injuries for a little bit and understand if you know why you had what, four femoral stress fractures or reactions? Sound like mm-hmm. you had some other stress fractures throughout your collegiate career, especially when you were running at a very high level. Did you ever get to the bottom of why you were getting hurt so regularly? I ended up doing some bone density scans by the time I was closer to being done with triathlon and they came back and all my bone density was like three standard deviations below average, which of course is not ideal. And that sort of lends itself to getting a bunch of stress fractures. And I'm always kind of like a, a bigger dude. I'm not huge, but like solid, especially for, for a runner. And then throughout college, I'd always kind of felt pressure to make sure I stayed skinny. And I feel like maybe I developed some, some bad eating habits for a little while in college that later came back to negatively impact how I, how I trained and how I recovered and, and the strength of my bones. Where did that pressure come from? Oh, me. I, I, I want. I want to smash everything, Mario. I want. I want. I want to win it all. I, every, every race I go to, I want to. I want to win that race. And it was a, a pressure to to make sure you know you're at the right weight and you're doing everything you can to to win the races. No, I mean that resonates with me because I found myself in the same situation after college when I was trying to make a go of it as a professional runner, and I was like, I'm five eight, hundred and forty one pounds. Nathan Ritzenheim's five eight and like hundred and nineteen pounds. I yeah. gotta look like that if I want to <laughs> run at that yeah. level. And you put that pressure on yourself to look look the part. Yeah, and. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll share you, I'll spare you all of the, the details, but long story short, it's like I lost, you know, 20 pounds in a very short yeah. period of time and then got two sacral stress fractures, one in my pubic <laughs> synthesis. And it yeah. was like, people were like, oh, do you feel pressure from like a, a coach or was it part of the culture of the program you're in? I'm like, no, it was all me because yeah. I just wanted to be the best that I could be. And I, I was like, well, this, yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to be at that level and I'll do whatever I have to do to get there. And it's that attitude that allows us to, you know, hit these really high places in our life, whether it's, you know, professionally, athletically, personally, whatever. But if we're not careful, like we weren't careful, it can (laughs) also be your biggest kryptonite and cause you to get injured or compromise some of the relationships in your life or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, but I made, I made an Olympic team, so it wasn't, it wasn't entirely wrong. And I can't say that doing something a little differently would have turned out a lot better because, I'm one of these lucky few guys who got to go represent his country. You got to realize a, a childhood dream. And, you know, some people's, the, the, 
the most beautiful thing about sports, right, is, is how fair and how unfair it is. Some people can succeed and crush it because they've put in all this work, but at the same time that, that work can come back and, and bite you in the butt because maybe your body just isn't, isn't quite cut out for it. But it's, it's beautiful in the, in the fact that it's those top three guys who make it. Those three guys are going to make it no matter what. It doesn't care that you came in with additional talent. It doesn't care that you came in with slightly the wrong body type. It's just, it's there, and that's what makes it beautiful and powerful. And everybody has that right to go for it. Everybody can, but there's some people who are just going to be SOL to not make it, to not achieve what they wanted to. And I'm lucky that I got to go to the Olympics and then also just devastated that I had a horrible race there. Yeah. Well, and it's those those moments when we're devastated or we're down because of injury or we can't do the things that we want to do because we're injured. I think the important thing, and it sounds like you eventually got there, is that you learn from it. And that makes you stronger. And then when you come back, you've got this new knowledge that, okay, like I know I can't do that because the result is I'm gonna get I'm gonna get hurt. And if I'm hurt, you know, I can't train to my potential. If I can't train to my potential, I can't race to my potential. So it's like Oftentimes it's like you need those to be part of the process or you never make the breakthroughs that are going to take you to the highest place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been really fun doing the marathons now, um, relative to that, just because I've been able to kind of focus on the things that I'm strong at and the things that I'm good at and the ways that I, I believe are going to make me the best without having to focus on maybe those things that might keep me from being good, Right. So the things that might keep me from being good is I'm definitely, I'm 5'8", five, 5'9", five, racing probably like 155, 160 is a, is a marathoner right now, which doesn't really add up. But at the same time, I'm able to focus on running some good long runs, making sure I eat the right stuff and making sure I, I roll some good workouts with some, with some great people in San Francisco. It's that change. Hey, one more quick break to thank Final Surge for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been using Final Surge for the past two and a half years to run the coaching side of my business as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless. Communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Final Surge syncs easily with a number of GPS watches and various other tracking platforms to import all the data that you'd ever need to analyze. The mobile app is incredible and makes on-the-go check-ins and communication easy and seamless. I couldn't do what I do without Final Surge, and I can't recommend it enough to other coaches, regardless of the level of athlete that you're working with. Final Surge is cost-effective for coaches, and athlete accounts are 100% free. It's great for coaches of all types and levels, whether you coach individual athletes like I do, high school and college teams, or even a club. Athletes can find training plans from a number of world-class coaches, including myself, and coaches, you can get a 10% discount on your first purchase of a coaching account using the coupon code MORNINGSHAKEOUT. That's all caps, no the, all one word, MORNINGSHAKEOUT, when you check out at finalsurge.com. Go to finalsurge.com slash morning shakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly to find more information about coaching packages or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. My thanks to Final Surge for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let's dig into running a little bit deeper because we spent a lot of this conversation talking about your triathlon career, which for good reason. I mean, you made yeah. the Olympic Games in triathlon, <laughs> so why wouldn't we talk about that? But 
you wrap up your triathlon career in 2016 after the Olympics. You get this great job with Visa where you're working now. It's taking you to Dubai. You're based here in San Francisco. Did you know you wanted to stay with running or with sport to some degree, or were you going to be open-minded and sort of see where your heart pulled you? I'd love to just get into your psyche a little bit at that point after your triathlon career is over, if you're like, okay, I just, I just got to like shut this off and put competitive sports behind me and focus on my career and all of these things that I've sacrificed over the last, you know, however many years I've been doing triathlon at a seriously high level. Oh yeah. When I first retired, I kind of blew everything up, right? I wanted to try everything different, everything that I'd been kind of sacrificing, not participating in for the past 20 years as I, as I focused on the Olympics, uh, because I, I really thought I was, I was out of it. Like I didn't want to get completely out of shape. I always like, you know, feeling in pretty good shape, but I knew I wanted to do some different things. So I joined some clubs, I started playing ping pong, started going out a lot more, making new friends, um, joined Toastmasters to go learn how to speak better. I took some writing classes, just tried a bunch of different things just to figure out who I was without sports and without kind of dedicating myself to running. And that was nice. Uh, but then I went to Dubai for six months and met up with some friends I'd had or some people who'd also been professional triathletes before. They were part of a really fun running community. It was called Inner Fight over there. And so I started running with them, started running with Brian MacArthur, who's a fun guy, Omar. And it was like, oh yeah, I started running because it's really fun and there's really nice people who do this. And it's really fun to be part of a community of people who are athletic and enjoy athleticism. And it got me back into it. And then racing that pyramids marathon, I was like, yeah, if, if I do sports this way, as opposed to the living in an altitude tent all day long approach, it's actually really fun. I like this. And it brings something to my life. It it brings in that ability to go compete, to go smash yourself, to go see how good you can be, to go achieve something every day, to go move forward and progress and watch that progression. And I think feeling that again, doing that again, competing that way brings something into work. It brings that desire to just crush it, to go in, to move things forward, to make things happen and to see things get done. That's hard to develop that mindset for me at least, without an athletic outlet. How have you gone about fitting your training in for marathons around working a full-time job at Visa, living in a city, and having other things in your life yeah. besides sport? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I mean, there's some things that I can't do as much anymore. Um, I don't go as often to Toastmasters as I would like recently now that I was shooting for that trials cut and I'll be racing trials, but it's developing that routine kind of after work I know I'm going to go run and on Sunday morning I know I'm going to go run but the main thing for me is you just got to keep it super simple you just got to go out there and be like it's just a run it's just a run if you miss this workout like if you don't do this workout well enough if you feel like garbage at this workout um, if you have to miss out a mile rep because you have to get back or you had to go to that happy hour first and you're going to show up after having had a couple beverages because you needed to socialize with your friends that's fine but you just go and you go do the run and you go do the work and just, the, get it done. just by getting the work done, you're going to progress. And that's been key for me. It's not overthinking it, keeping it simple and doing it kind of every day. So you run Pyramids Marathon, you go 232, you win San Francisco, 225, hard course. Mm -hmm. You go to New York running for Biofreeze, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and ran 222. So now yeah. you're three minutes off 
the trials qualifier. When did you start thinking seriously about going after the sub 219 and getting a spot on the line at Atlanta at the end of February? It would have been after San Francisco. Not seriously, but I was pretty surprised that I ran a 225 there because the course is bananas. Yeah. Yeah. And Jorge and I had kind of been feeling each other out for 18 miles before I made kind of a move. Um, So it wasn't really like I was racing for a time at all there. And then I ran 225, took a bunch of time off afterwards, but was like, I, I could probably make uh, make the Olympic trials cut. So I'd entered CIM just on the off chance that I wanted to go for it. But then what really got me back into it is a former friend, a former teammate at Wake Forest, Caitlin Chrisman, who'd run there, connected me with a guy, Oscar Medina, who was going for the trials cut uh, maybe back in uh, end of August, September. And we started running together. And he was going for the trials cut in Chicago. So running with him kind of got me back into it. And I met some other guys who were also going for it. And I really, I found like another cool group out here of guys who were all going for the Olympic trials cut. And it was really fun to get back in and go train hard and work with them. Going for going for the trials has been one of the coolest athletic experiences of all time. Because if you do well, if you bring your best to the workout, if you help other guys do well in their workout, you're all coming close to achieving your goal. You can all win at the same race. And that's never been true before, right? If I won, the other guy's going to get second. But here, I can run a 216 or whatever at trials, qualify. And those other guys that I've been training with have all qualified as well. And we all got to win. And it was such a cool, communal, collaborative, athletic experience, unlike anything else. It's got some parallels to the group environment you were in with the triathlon squad, though, because most of the folks on that squad, like, they're trying to get on the Olympic team. But yeah. like you said, if you take one of those spots, I mean, someone else doesn't yeah. get it. It's a little yeah, there's more... There's spots. Yeah. There's, there's not infinite spots under 219. Well, that, but that's what it'll be to make the Olympic team <laughs> yeah. in the marathon. I mean, yeah. you've got people who are on the same training group, and they all want to make the team. But it's like, if someone from Nazalite makes a team, that might mean someone else from Nazalite doesn't make the team, or yeah. Bowerman Track Club, or, or whatever it is. So it's, it's a great place to be, I guess, as like a sub-elite. Yeah. Because you're like, okay, making the trials is like a big deal. It's the jam. And it's like, if we all make it and it's like, it's just a time standard, as long as we all hit the time, like we're not taken away from anyone else. So, I mean, that part of it's cool. But back to the point of like just surrounding yourself, like, you know, not in a group environment where you're living together all the time and like seeing each other every hour of every day and like working toward this singular thing, but you are all working toward this singular thing in your own ways and you can help each other out. And like, that's been one of the coolest things about amateur running right now is we're seeing that like, you know, you found people locally here in San Francisco who are doing that thing, but it, it's happening like on an even grander scale and like virtually through social media, you can see like, oh, well, well this guy's the same age as me and he works full time and, you know, he's able to like get the training in and go after it. Why not me? Yeah. And, and there, you saw that at CIM, like you've got a lot of people who are like in that same situation. I think it's just like, a, it's a really great time for the competitive amateur marathoner right now in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. To be able to connect with that many people. And that's, that's what it was. It was, it was, uh, it was a goal with, with a connection and that's what made it valuable again for me. Um, the other thing that's kind of brought my running back to a really fundamental part of my life was coming back to the U S I knew I kind of wanted to join a running club because I'd been part of one in, in Dubai. And then I came back and I was like, I want to join something. And I was Googling around for running clubs and I saw back on my feet, back on my feet came up which is a cool program that works to provide help for people struggling through homelessness um, in country in cities throughout the U.S. So they have a chapter in San Francisco, and you know, talking to talking to some of the members that I that I run with, I was like, "How would you describe 
back on my feet. What, what kind of does it do for you? And they're like, it's, it's a lifeline for me right now when I'm going through this homeless struggle because I need this community to work with because it gives me people that, that I'm going to go see on a regular basis. Um, and, and I love it because it resonated to me with how I look at running, right? It's this continual thing that you can go to, that you can see progress in. And then when I do it with a community, they all kind of bring me up together and they share that same kind of mindset. So it's been awesome to be able to train with Back on My Feet. Uh, the program requires that the home, uh, the members, uh, people struggling with homelessness, come and attend at least 90% of runs for 30 days. And then after that, they provide those, those homeless members with um, job support, training, um, facilities to enable them to develop the skills in order to go back and, and get a job, get get housing, get back on their feet. And it's been really cool to be able to share some of my experiences as an athlete and join that community. I got to MC at some random treadmill challenge recently. I, I love being able to help the members through. They do a timed mile once a month. So the members will be training, they'll be getting better. And I can pace these guys through, you know, their first sub seven minute mile, their first sub six minute mile. And it's so much fun to be able to see that improvement and see them succeed and hear about the stories of them getting a new job or of them moving into a new house. It's it's fantastic. It's been able to bring a whole whole different light to running. Well, you're running for something that's greater than yourself. And anytime that you're doing that, it's going to not only bring the best out of yourself, but it gives your running this whole new level of meaning that it didn't have before. And I imagine that's different than when you're pursuing triathlon at the level that you were at, because that's all you. It's like, yeah. I either make the Olympic team or I don't. Like, There's not really much more to it when you're in the thick of it, I imagine. That was one of the reasons that I retired from, from triathlon, right, is all of a sudden it didn't have that same meaning. And I, I knew I wanted a way to bring out that meaning from sport because it had given me a lot in my life, right? A lot of self-confidence, a lot of self-worth. And being able to find something that that did that same thing for a different group of people that I could contribute to in a, a special way because I'd spent so much of my life in sport um, was completely life-changing for me. It was awesome to be able to race San Francisco with that kind of back-on-my-feet jersey, to be able to cross the line, win with those guys, because a, a ton of the, the back-on-my-feet members had run either the marathon or the half marathon, and it had been the first time for them completing that distance. So be able to be there with them, kind of go through the same thing, it it does completely change the passion with which I can approach running. Well, I think that's incredible. They're a great organization. I had Katie Sherratt, who's the CEO of Back on My Feet, on this podcast earlier this year. I can't remember off the top of my head what episode number that was. But for those of you listening, if you want to go back and check that out, it's Katie Sherratt, the Morning Shakeout podcast. Check it out. She talks a lot about the organization, the impact that it's having not only here in San Francisco, but at cities here around the U.S. And, and I think it's a tremendous organization that is helping people enrich their lives through running. And there's nothing better than that. Last couple things before we wrap up, because I know we're running a bit long on time here. Um, back to your Olympic trials qualifying time, 216, You didn't just break 219. You smashed it. <laughs> were you surprised that you went as fast as you did? Yeah, a little bit. Going in, I knew I wanted to get under 219, and that was like it. So we took it out 109, 06, 109, 10, something like that. And I kind of felt like I was jogging going into it. I knew I was pretty fit, but I also knew I didn't want to explode. So I wasn't going to go out any faster than around a 109. So I just stayed with that group. And then 
you know, you go out into 109, there's a limit to how fast you're going to go, especially if you're scared about not breaking 219. And then we go through mile like 20, 21. And I was like, all right, I still feel fine. I've had none of those moments in a marathon, which are happen to me every time where you just all of a sudden feel like garbage for eight miles or 800 meters. And then you feel fine again. Then you feel like garbage, but that had not happened here. And I was like, all right, it's time. Let's rip it. Game on. Game on. Let's go. And then, uh, yeah, dropped those last five miles. I think I averaged under five minutes per mile for those last little bit. And it was some of the most fun I've ever had running just because I felt spectacular. I was racing. I was going to get in the top 10. Well, I was dude, gonna I win. was looking at your splits. Yeah. You went from like 52nd place, no joke, at yeah. 30K, so 18.6 <laughs> miles to what, eighth? Yeah. Yeah. At the end. So over the last eight miles of the race, you picked up like 45 <laughs> spots or something silly like that. 44 spots. It was so, it was so cool. Uh, and it was so much fun to go by, by blow by people. I, I know I just had a smile plastered on my face because then I crossed the finish line and I was like, I felt fine. Dude, and you I were jacked <laughs> when you crossed the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so much fun because I saw those sixth, seventh place guys like right ahead of me and I thought I might be able to catch them. Um, but you know, they, they were running fast and it was just fun to be in there racing again, kind of winning a little bit of money. Not like I cared about the money, but just knowing that I was in the money and kind of that, that competitive was so cool. So trials are 10 weeks from yesterday yeah. as of this conversation. You're in. Yeah. You've competed at the Olympic Games in triathlon. This is not your career anymore. How yeah. are you thinking about the Olympic trials at the end of February? I'm thinking that on the 1st of March, I am not going to be able to walk. <laughs> That's the only thing I know right now. I am going to absolutely annihilate myself on February 29th. I'm excited about putting in a really cool block of training over the next 10 weeks. I've been thinking about what I want to do. Um, like I said before, those awesome guys, Adam, Max, Oscar that I qualified with, I know we're going to be training pretty hard together to go roll a really fast race there. And then, you know, we'll see all these other races I've, I've known kind of like what I wanted to do when I came in, like San Francisco. I know I was like, I'm going to sit right behind Jorge for 18 miles or 20 miles and then smash it. In CIM, I know I'm going to sit with the 219 pace group and then smash it. And I need to figure out what that equivalent is going to be in in Atlanta. But all I know is I could potentially, based on how hard I go, just end up throwing up, devastated, on the side of the road, completely DNF, and be absolutely stoked because I hammered myself that day. So the only thing I know right now is I'm not going to be able to walk on March 1st. And unlike four years ago in triathlon, your livelihood doesn't depend on it. Oh yeah. I can go in completely relaxed, not really caring. Yeah, nothing and to just, lose. Nothing to lose. Be able to smash myself. Um, it'll be fun. I also think the race could be really cool because with a million people wearing vapor flies, <laughs> I feel like there's going to be some pretty awesome kick finishes at the end. Like I feel like there's going to be a lot of people together because there's going to be a lot of people all of a sudden who can kind of run that same pace by drafting off of somebody else. And it's going to be hard with no pacemakers to really kind of break that field apart. So I'll, I'll be curious to see how it all plays out. A lot of pure runners are up in arms about all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but you coming from your triathlon background yeah. where you've got 
you know, disc wheels and aero suits yeah. and like you're trying to optimize every little last detail. This is like right up your alley. <laughs> I love it. I, I have no problem with the vapor flies because they still look like shoes. I look at the alpha flies and I go, those don't really look like shoes anymore. It's kind of along the lines of the UCI rules where they're like, it has to look like a bike. I'm like, okay, I, I can get on board with that. But yeah, I love it. It's I gotta love to fulfill the platonic ideal for what a bike should be. <laughs> That's right. And if you can make a shoe, like even I have some of the old four percenters that I train in now, and it just makes it easier to do long training runs, recover, and not get my femoral stress fractures. It's just made running more fun. I just like it. <laughs> How are you going about training for marathons? Are you working with a coach? Are you doing all of your own stuff? I'd love to dig into that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, no, I do all my own stuff. Um, I remember a while ago, I, I coached a girl a bit for a marathon and I did a bunch of research to make sure I was doing it kind of right. And based on that, I came up with some sort of basic training philosophies that I like to do. Like I'll do my long runs. I always like to finish my long runs with a little bit of marathon pace. Um, I love hill reps that came from triathlon. And then for my hard workouts, I really like sort of like pace change workouts. So you do a little bit of marathon pace and then you go smash yourself. Um, and then you do a little bit of marathon pace because then you jump back to marathon pace and all of a sudden it Surge feels recover. really recover. easy to run marathon pace. And for me, that's the thing. You need to always feel easy running marathon pace and you always need to be training so that you can close the marathon at marathon pace. Because you see these guys, they, they close the marathon at like 5.30. All of a sudden, they've been running perfect the whole time. They miss it by nothing, and I'm terrified of that. So those are my sort of training philosophies. Well, and I think for a race, like the trials are going to be in Atlanta where it's a loop course. It's relentlessly hilly the yeah. entire time. There's going to be a lot of that like surge, recover, surge, recover. It's not a Berlin or a CIM where <laughs> it's like, let's lock in to 505 no. and just ride that train yeah. all the way. It's going to be pretty bumpy the entire way. And I think the people who are going to do well are going to be those folks who can run marathon pace, surge, recover back to marathon pace. Maybe they're forced to slow down, get back on the train uh, and be able to do that for the entirety of the 26.2 mile course. Oh, I'm excited. I, I really wanted the course to have that extra lap that was going to be extra hilly. And I want the course to be as hot as possible because I do well in the heat. I like the hills and I feel like if it plays to that strength, I could, you know, do stupidly well um, or, or better than my training and talent uh, would allow me to under other circumstances. How much is your high level of triathlon training, years of high level triathlon training? And obviously, I mean, you ran collegiately and trained hard in that single discipline as well, contributed to your current marathon success. Yeah. The training you do for triathlon is, is unreal. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard there'll be some hard workout that you do every single day. It would be like Thursday, you know, you do all three sports every day of the week, except for Sundays, which are like a five hour ride. So Thursdays you would do this all out threshold max swim set. Fridays you'd go out and you'd do the all out eight by five minutes on the bike or whatever. And then, you know, obviously those days you'd swim and you'd run too. And then you wake up Saturday morning, you go, you ride 90 minutes, you show up to the track, you go around on the track. We do like 10 to 12 by a K on, on the track at like 245 to 255, kind of three minutes, that, that sort of area, just because you need to be ready to try to run a sub 30 minute 10 K if you want to do well um, in a triathlon race. So doing that for years and years, just means now I can kind of just go chill out. I've got this nice, huge base <laughs> built up. I just do a little things here and there, and then bam, I'm ready to go. It's just, it's nice. it's just window dressing. It's just it's all just window dressing now. I just go out and have fun. 
<laughs> Last question. I am not going to reveal who seated me with it. Yeah. But I've been told to ask you, what does it mean to go full Billington? <laughs> full Billington oh, means that you get to annihilate yourself. This is the day where you go shut your mind down, completely commit to that workout and just end puking and knowing that you've got it done. So for me, this would be like you arrive to the bike workout. You're completely shaven down. You've gotten 400 milligrams of caffeine in. You've been listening to Eminem all morning. You've watched some Muhammad Ali inspirational, I'm so mean, I make medicine sick videos (laughs) and you are ready to crush it. This is how I set the KOM up snowball and this is how I'm going to go approach trials in Atlanta. So this is a place that you have been more than a couple times in your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is my favorite place to be. (laughs) Well, I wish you the best. This is a great conversation. Enjoyed our run this morning. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shaker podcast. Yeah, thank you, Mario. This is fantastic. another episode of the books thank you so much for listening in if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on instagram twitter or facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me a big thank you to our sponsors for this episode exoskin and final surge ExoSkin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand in the United States and solves the problems most endurance athletes deal with, like chafing, blisters, hotspots, and odor. I've run in both their compression shorts and socks and have been super impressed with how they fit, feel, and perform on the run. ExoSkin stands behind every product they make with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check them out today at exoskin.us and use the code MARIO, that's my name, when you check out and save 20% on any order. Final Surge is the platform I use to run the coaching side of my business as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless. Communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Go to finalsurge.com slash morning shakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly to find more information about coaching packages or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. Coaches, you can get a 10% discount on your first purchase of a coaching account using the coupon code morning shakeout. That's all caps, no the, all one word when you check out at finalsurge.com. A big shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show, and he makes every episode sound as good as it does. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas, who handles my sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 